You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from the North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Who is God? Who is God? Your answer to that question is the most important thing about you. Your answer determines your future and it colors every aspect of the way you live. Now we're preaching our way through Genesis these days and I've been assigned chapters 13 and 14. Why does Moses end up writing five books of the Bible? Well, one of his aims is to introduce the people that he's leading to God, the God of their ancestors and their God. So he writes out what writes up what turns out to be the first five books of the Bible, including today's text, chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis. You might want to be turning there because we're going to be there this morning. Moses will eventually lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and he wants to explain to them, who is this God who delivered you? And he doesn't invent an answer. He explains reality. He records actual history as it is revealed to him by God and confirmed. And along the way, he answers the question, who is God? In today's text, Moses will provide more than one answer, but see if you can spot the one answer that he will give four times in this text. Not all passages in the Bible jump to the foreground as major passages that will be rehearsed over and over as household topics of conversation, like maybe the flood or the crossing of the Red Sea or become one of your favorite life verses. I know hardly anybody who has a favorite life verse from these two chapters. For example, raise your hand if at any time in the past several years you recall talking with anyone about Shebamer, king of Zeboim. (laughs) Well, he's in this text along with a bunch of other kings that I challenge you to pronounce. Today's text, Genesis 13 and 14, is so overshadowed in the Bible by other texts that, well, when we prepared as a team of preachers to preach through Genesis, it was suggested that we preachers get a copy of this book, Preaching Christ from Genesis. And uh, when I bought a copy with eagerness to see what It might say from chapters 13 and 14, I discovered that the book has very helpful things to say about chapter 12 and chapter 15. And there's a black hole where there's 13 and 14. So I confess to you that I'm humbled by my inability to understand the Bible as well as I would like. Maybe you join me in that. For example, Today's text will mention a fellow named Melchizedek. And in the middle of a New Testament text about Melchizedek, Hebrews 5.11 says, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Some parts of the Bible are hard to explain. And just maybe... I've become dull of hearing. 
in a different place, Jesus said to Peter, what I'm doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. That gives me encouragement. Afterward, you will understand. That's prophetic. Understanding will come afterward. It's a promise. You will understand. And it fuels faith. The one making the promise will deliver the understanding. Now be reminded here at this juncture that the Bible is not only for our instruction, it's for our good. And one of the good things that God gives us is understanding. Let me give you just two texts to support this as we move toward our text for this morning. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. We're gonna profit here in the next few minutes. All scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So let's dig in to today's text and find some profit. There are many ways we could come at it, but we're gonna look for profit by digging with the shovel called who is God? We're going to look for the answer to that. And I want to thank here Jared Compton. I don't know if he's in this service and our pastoral team for helping me grapple with this text. What we will find in today's text turns out to be glorious. Chapter 13, verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt. Now he's been down in Egypt and it was a disastrous trip. He lies about his wife to the Pharaoh the Pharaoh takes her to be his wife, and as a consequence, God sends plagues. What a mess Abram has made. And basically then, by the end of chapter 12, this liar has been booted out of Egypt. He's basically been paid by Pharaoh, get out of here. And the Pharaoh makes him very rich. Continuing in verse 1, he and his wife, Abram and his wife, and all that he had, that's going to be important here in a minute, and Lot, which is his nephew, with him into the Negev. Verse 2, now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So Abram, though he's a migrant tent dweller, he's no country bumpkin. He's a rich dude. Note the inventory, gold, silver, livestock. Their possessions are so great that the land can't support them. That's a lot of beef. That's a lot of sheep. That's a lot of camels. Verse 3, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Good move, Abram. Back to basics. First things first. And what happens next? Verse five. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife 
between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. I'm going to underline that phrase. There was strife. There was strife. Do I need to explain to you what strife is? <laughs> I see head shaking over here. No, you know what strife is. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife. So verse 7 says, there was strife. And Abram says, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. So Abram desires to avoid strife. We're with him in that. We'd like to avoid it too. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. And if you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. So Abram negotiates. And he does so with deferential flexibility. As a senior clansman, he could have called dibs. But he defers to his nephew. He waives his own rights. Because he seeks to avoid trouble, one might ask if Abram is conflict avoidant, even cowardly. I mean, especially after the way he conspired with Sarai to lie to the Pharaoh about who she was. Is Abram a chicken? We'll get an answer to that in chapter 14 in just a moment. Verse 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm just gonna pause here long enough to say that it is the Lord who destroys Sodom and Gomorrah but not yet. And there's a noteworthy difference between the lushness and agricultural fertility of Lot's chosen land prior to God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and the less fertile and more austere nature of the land thereafter. The raining down of God's obliterating justice on those twin cities will have a lingering effect. Verse 11, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. And thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now what I find remarkable about that verse is not only its content, but its context. Just prior to this verse 13, Moses is recounting how Abram and Lot separated their flocks and, and herdsmen, moving to different regions. And just after this verse 13, Moses tells us how the Lord instructed Abram to walk the length and the breadth of the land that the Lord was giving him and that Abram will build an altar there. So you've got this, this deciding who's going to get the land and the decisions made. And in the middle, he puts this verse about the wicked men of Sodom. Verse 13 is seemingly stuck in there almost randomly. The comment about the Sodomites seems almost out of place there. But in fact, shortly, they will be put out of place. And their place will be destroyed. But that's still coming. Come back for future installments in this sermon series. These men in Sodom not only sin, but they sin greatly. 
Some versions translate it that they sin exceedingly, constantly, extremely, or terribly. The community as a whole was guilty, not only of notoriously open and public impudence, but in defiance of God, and their defiance became addicted to an abominable lust for unnatural acts. For now, just note that God knows they are wicked, and he has not punished them yet. Are we learning anything about God? Who is God? He's patient with sinners. Isn't that true in our own day? Isn't that true in this room? Verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will, mark that, I will, give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. I will is a promise God makes promises. I'm answering the question, who is God? He makes promises. He makes general promises to all, and he makes specific promises to some, promises that don't apply to everyone else. Here he makes a specific promise to Abram. It is a promise freely made. Abram does not suggest it or barter for it. God simply makes the promise, having thought of it on his own, without owing any of it to the merit of Abram. Abram is chosen, and God is the one doing the choosing, which he does freely, without regard to anything outside of himself. God chooses. Moses is still helping us answer the question, who is God? He is a God who chooses. Having recognized the unmerited favor coming to him from the Lord, Abram does a fitting thing. He builds an altar of worship. It's not a worship of altars. It's not a worship of worship. It's not a worship of forms or spirituality or religiosity. We, all those things are just a matter of worship, worshiping yourself because you make up the rules of how you're going to do it. Abram is giving thanks to the one who has acted in real history, has made certain promises for the future. Abram's faith includes belief that more good is yet to come. When he lifts up his eyes, he sees not only the land, but the Lord who has given it to him. And he sees offspring not yet existing, not yet born, but he can see them by faith. Abram recognizes good as good and does not shrug his shoulders as though it is owed to him. If it were owed to him, he could have said to the Lord, it's about time, what kept you? But he knows it is not deserved. God initiates this blessing. He's the initiator. I'm still answering the question, who is God? God is the initiator and Abram the responder. God always acts first. He always has more acting to do. He's never done. Verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It would be helpful to just pause long enough to notice now 
that Abram ends up living in a location that he did not choose, remember? He said to Lot, if you go here, I'll go there. If you go there, I'll go here. He didn't choose it. And yet, by taking the leftovers, at last, by a process of elimination, Abram settles in the land to which God had sent him in the first place. Isn't that interesting? God is the God of ends and means. He will get you to a certain place and he is sovereign over the means by which he will get you there. And Moses is still answering the question, who is God? Apparently, Moses, about 700 years later, and by the breathing of the Holy Spirit, wants the readers to know this particular vignette, this little episode in here. It has something to do with God's big story about redeeming his chosen children. But how? How is Lot going one way and Abram settling for another parcel of land so important to the overall story that it's not omitted? Why didn't Moses just skip it? What does this have to do with the big picture? Writing was very costly in those days. It took great pains for Moses to put this down. He didn't just type it out on his laptop in a few minutes. I infer that this episode is not extraneous. Nothing is extraneous in the Bible. Perhaps this vignette is included for reasons, like I'll give you a couple of possible reasons. One is to serve as a warning. Lot chooses what appears to be best in the short run, but that's short-sighted. Beware of making choices based upon what seems best in the short run. Be warned by this story. Or here's another possibility why Moses includes it. To show that Abram, though not perfect, is growing in faith, doing better than he did in his significant failure in Egypt. A case is being made for faith in what it looks like. Now, in the interest of time, instead of reading verses 1 through 10 of chapter 14, let me just summarize it by saying that a bunch of kings formed an alliance to make war against a different alliance of kings, okay? Five kings against four kings. Skip to verse 11 of chapter 14. So the enemy, that's the alliance of the four kings who defeated the alliance of the five kings, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way and they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. When then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the Oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner, and these were allies of Abram. Remember back in chapter 13, verse nine, when I asked, is Abram a chicken? Is he afraid of controversy? Here we go, verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken active, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Strap on your swords, boys, and saddle up. There have just been nine kings and kingdoms at war. And Abram says, our family's going out there. Verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, which is quite a distance, by the way. 
And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions. Remember, that's a lot of possessions. And the women and the people. Now, whereupon we see in the record here that Moses records for us a very significant and yet mysterious event attended by an equally significant and mysterious character. Many things in the Bible are simultaneously significant and mysterious. God himself is significant and mysterious. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of the alliance of the kings who captured Lot, 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of now Moses is answering the question, who is God? There it is, God most high. Now who is this King Melchizedek? In this text he's listed as King of Salem, which could be Jerusalem, possibly. And later, David will refer to this Melchizedek in Psalm 110, and I debated when I was preparing this message working on it in the early going some time ago, whether I should start by preaching out of Psalm 110 and then jump over to the book of Hebrews to explain who's this mysterious and significant Melchizedek. And I have, I have resigned myself to the fact that I think it's a whole separate sermon at some point, maybe someday when we're preaching through Hebrews. In fact, one, one person has said that the book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is an answer to the question, who is Melchizedek? That's a possible way to read that book. The name Melchizedek isn't going to go away after this text in Genesis. Later in the book of Hebrews, he will be tied explicitly to Jesus Christ. Verse 19, and he, that's Melchizedek, blessed him, that is Abram. When, when God issues a blessing, nothing in existence will ever have the power or authority to cancel that blessing. No demon no politician, no court, no disease, no desert winds, no marauding army or alliance of armies, no interfering parent, no random chance, by the way, there's no such thing, no social or cultural revolution can cancel his blessing, no technological discovery, not even the alleged free will of the one being blessed, no blessing of God will be impeached derailed, prohibited, canceled on account of a blizzard or a pandemic or any other thing. And the, the delayed arrival of a blessing is a well-timed, that is, perfectly timed arrival. I will bless you. And then we think, where is it? It hasn't come, it hasn't come, it hasn't come. It's coming at the perfect time. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, is sovereign, absolutely sovereign. When he blesses, it's blessed. And in the end, he will be found to have exercised his sovereignty with absolutely no injustice ever, not even once. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, is righteous. And in his righteous sovereignty, he doesn't just issue laws and warnings, he issues blessings. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, is good. 
There is no higher source of blessing than to be blessed by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. It's one thing to be blessed by a king. It's another one to be blessed by the one who owns and governs the king. Still in verse 19, and said, blessed be Abram by, and now Moses is answering the question as Melchizedek answers it, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So Melchizedek takes a look at this battlefield and the booty, and he directs attention vertically to God most high, possessor of heaven and earth and all the booty. The main thing I want us to see here in chapter 14, verses 18 through 22, is that God is two things at once. He's most high. That's mentioned four times in the text. I hope you've been counting. And number two, he's possessor of heaven and earth. And those two things go hand in hand. For it would be impossible to be most high while somebody else owns everything or owns anything. Whoever holds jurisdiction finally is most high. God doesn't just possess the earth. In spite of the great temporary conquests of one of the kings here, Cato Leomer, or the other kings that are hard to pronounce in there, or modern day kings, Caesar, Attila, Hitler, their conquests over vast regions of the world, such conquerors individually or combined never had one ounce of authority over heaven. God most high is the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram, it is God most high who delivered these kings to you. It wasn't merely your 318 men. Now observe a contrast in verse 21. While Melchizedek gave bread and wine and blessing. The king of Sodom wants to take, to enslave persons. Verse 21, then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I, king of Sodom, have made Abram rich. Abram is getting it. He now calls the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He's getting it. Are we? God has blessed Abram with victory and Abram wants it known that God is behind all other blessings, including material blessings. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let these other guys take their share. While Abram's faith in God is growing, I would like us to observe that so is his character and that's how it works. Character is fueled by faith. Observe several Christ-like character qualities that are growing in Abram. He is content with what God has provided. Abram exhibits a sense of justice. What those kings took, they should not have taken. 
He deals even-handedly in the public square. He's decisive in mobilizing his troops. He takes initiative in righting a wrong. He shows love and kindness for his nephew by seeking and securing his freedom from captivity. He demonstrates humility in his awareness that he's already lifted his hand to the Lord in a promise and that the all-seeing eyes of the auditing Lord will know whether Abram keeps his word or not. And he shows faithfulness and integrity, keeping his word to the Lord, not taking any wealth from this king of Sodom. Now, no one is more content or just or decisive or loving or kind or humble or faithful than Jesus. And when Abram displays these qualities, he's reflecting Christ-likeness. I'll just put it in parenthesis here. At this point in the story, Abram is still childless. Stay tuned. Now consider one more thought about Melchizedek. Namely, he passes from the scene. We infer, I would argue, he dies. He's no longer a king or a priest. If I jump over to Hebrews 7, 23, the former priests, which includes Melchizedek, a former priest, were many in number because they were prevented by death. That's one reason why I infer Melchizedek has died. He's no longer a priest because he's dead. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus, this is going to be good news, people. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, verse 25 of Hebrews 7, which means therefore, or get this implication, because he lives forever, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives. And that's not the end of the verse. What's he doing while he always lives? What's he doing January 21st, 2024 for the people in this room? Let me finish the verse. He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for you now. He's advocating for you with the Father. Father, their sins, I got them. They're covered. I nailed them to that tree. Paid. You and I need someone who is both a king and a priest. We need a king, someone who has righteous authority, able to make righteous things stick. And we need a priest to represent us as unrighteous sinners to a righteous authority. And if Jesus is just a king, just a righteous king, then we're left to live in terror. But if he's also a priest without sin who lives and intercedes, that is good news. What has Jesus been doing ever since his resurrection and ascension? Answer, interceding for you and me. What's he doing right now? He's appealing to the Father on your behalf. So from this text, we could answer the question, who is God? a number of ways, but the fourfold way that Moses answered it is he's God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. 
If that's who he is, what should we do? We should offer our lives to him in totality and we should offer our praise and thanks to him. We're gonna have an opportunity to sing right now as the worship team comes. And I'm asking you, because he is God most high and possessor of heaven and earth, that you throw your heart into the substance and meaning of what we're about to sing. We're gonna sing about before the throne of God above. You have a Melchizedek-like priest who's before the throne advocating for you and that should just well up in our hearts with overflowing thanksgiving. Let me pray as we prepare to sing. So by your spirit now, God Almighty, overcome the impediments and the barriers, the barriers and the inertia that's in our hearts. Maybe some staleness, maybe some dullness, maybe some distraction. Overcome all of that so that we sing with all of our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from The North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.